Well, good afternoon. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. We began the book of Joel uh, last Lord's Day and looking forward to continuing that um, today to see the lessons that the Lord uh, has for us in this book. Perhaps during times of trial and calamity in your own life, you've asked questions such as, what are you doing, Lord? Or, why me? Or, I just don't know where to turn. And these can be prompted by a number of things. Lately, I've asked some of those questions in light of the afflictions that's in our family. And, you know, the reality is, is that we hear those types of words in hospital rooms and deep conversations with friends, those times of adversity. Sometimes it comes at the, the hand of extreme physical suffering or even more, that emotional pain that we can carry that can be excruciating. Failures, broken relationships, anxieties, and fear can, as it were, paint us into a corner. Well, the central theme of the prophet of Joel is at a time of national catastrophe in Judah. Joel is calling the people to return to God to, to come to God with sincerity, to, as we'll see next week, to rend your heart, not your garments, to come with a sincere heart in repentance. Their only hope was in God alone. And so he helps them, as it were, to connect the dots of national calamity of what's happened with the locust invasion and what God is trying to do to get their attention. And so, Let's turn, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passages and sections, or the chapter and sections. We're going to read verses 2 to 7 first, and I'll read in segments as we go through. So, the book of Joel, chapter 1, and verse 2. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons to the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth is like the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs like a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Let's pray. Father, indeed, as we go through this book, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to consider many applications in our lives individually, but even as a nation, as this United States of America, and the various calamities that has come upon it, and and the calamities that are yet to come, surely, O God, you do not wink at sin, and surely your judgment is not going to remain idle And Lord, your judgment manifests itself in various ways and already has been revealed from heaven. 
So Lord, we pray that you would help us even now to consider this text and its full implications in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The prophet Joel writes when Judah is in the midst of this unprecedented national calamity. The locust plague has wiped out the land. It's wiped out the economy. It's interfered with even the temple worship of God, and therefore it's a picture of of the communion with God has been disrupted, has been disjointed. Joel's understanding of the sovereignty of God is that he wants to point to those insects are messengers from Almighty God to get your attention. There's a plague, there's a call to lament. That's actually the title of our message, A Call to Lament. There's a call to lament, there's instructions on how to return in this book and restoration and and even the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit and the assurance of final victory that is for each of us who are in Christ. Joel's name means Jehovah is God. His main role is to convey God's word with clarity and sincerity to give a clear call to repentance and hope. And so, today as we come to our text, we want to consider this. We will never understand what God is trying to communicate to us, be it through national disasters or even just personal calamities that may come upon our lives, until we humble ourselves before God. Technical difficulties, just give me one second. J.I. Packer has said, Not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness and distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. So humility is absolutely necessary. So we're going to look at this text, the whole rest of chapter 1, under three heads, first of all. Lament, since national disaster has come to Judah. Secondly, solemnly cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And then thirdly, we'll have some practical application. So, first of all, verses 2 and 3. An awful calamity has come to Judah. This calamity should get the full attention of every one of the inhabitants of the land, especially its leaders. You see, in times of prosperity and in times of peace, We can become neglectful. We can forget these types of things. We can even have a sense of false assurance. Like the wind is at my back. My bank accounts have many zeros. What's there to fear? And then calamity can come suddenly. The elders are those people who have influence over the tribes and the the families of the land. And, And so there's this double imperative. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. It's a call to get attention. It's very similar to Deuteronomy 32, where we have the list of covenant curses and covenant blessings to the people of God near the end of Moses' life. You remember those, uh, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 32, but Deuteronomy 32 and verse 1, there's several parallels with the book of Joel, and I may send that out for you just to consider But it begins like this, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. I I think it's remarkable throughout the Word of God how often we are told to listen, to hear. Or as Jesus would say, He who has ears, 
I've never seen anybody without ears. Right? He who has ears, let him hear. There's a constant call for this. Psalm 49, hear this, O peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Remember those seven letters to the churches of Revelation and Revelation 2 and 3 that we considered early on in COVID, Christ's word to his church just a year and a half, two years ago. At the end of each one of those letters, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 2b, has anything like this happened in your days? or even in your father's days. Nothing like this had happened in recent history for these people. It calls attention, this calls attention to the astonishing severity of this particular plague that has hit. There's a call that, that has anything even like this happened in our days, all of us who are alive? Has, has anything even happened like this in your father's days? It's kind of like when I recount being in the middle of one of the largest tornado outbreaks in history, where over 500 tornadoes were spawned in the course of about 36 hours in April 1973. I can say I've never been in anything since that calamity. So much destruction was there. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here for um, the, the elders here can refer to it can it can be translated the older man or older men rather and so it could be that what he's saying is that that even even the oldest of you in the land has anything like this ever happened in verse 3 the lessons to be learned here are so important that they are to be passed down to the next generation Joel the prophet is telling them to look beyond the immediate Natch um, devastation and 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 the, the insects and all of that and ultimately that it's God who was against them because of their sin. Joel wants the memory. God wants the wants the memory of this through the prophet Joel of this cataclysmic event to go on into perpetuity. Okay, not to not be forgotten to the next generation. We see this positively in a couple of places in the Old Testament. You'll remember after the Passover, there's a Passover liturgy, as it were, in Exodus 12 and verse 24, where it says, And you shall observe the event of this ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord, which the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Also, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, uh, where there's that call to instruct our children, Right? that you shall train your children in the morning and in the, in the night and in the midday, and you shall point to God constantly. Charles Spurgeon says this, to, to teach children is a personal duty. We cannot delegate it to Sunday school teachers or to friendly aides. Mothers and fathers must, like Abraham, command their households in the fear of God 
and talk with their offspring concerning the wondrous works of the Most High. Parenting, or parental teaching, is a natural duty. Who's so fit to look to the child's well-being as those who are the authors of his actual being? To neglect instruction to our offspring is worse than brutish. Family religion is necessary for the nation, for the family itself, and for the church of God. So, hear this! Take note! Has anything like this ever happened before? Make sure your sons and your sons' sons know about this. Brings us to verse 4. It's a description of the devastation that has taken place of the locust plague. Now, there's an interpretive question here. Is this speaking of a real locust invasion, or are these invading armies, right? And there's good commentators that fall on, on both sides there. Locusts may be symbols of thoroughgoing destruction. You see that in, in um, Revelation chapter 9. Some suggest that these four terms, Hebrew terms, um, that are being used here describe four waves or four foreign armies that have come in to devastate Judah over the years, Babylon, the Medes, the Greeks, and the Romans. But it's my conviction after studying this in great detail that this it's describing an actual locust invasion. Four different Hebrew words are here, and it could mean four different types of locusts, but more likely the four stages of a locust life. And some of you, if you're on our email list, you, you uh, maybe saw the little three-minute video I sent just to kind of give you a, a sampling of, of what a locust invasion looks like and how devastating it can be. The vivid description that's here in such detail points to the fact that this is indeed a real locust in, invasion that God Almighty has sent and judgment upon the land. It's interesting in verse 6 where it says, a nation has in, invaded my land. And, and you think about the locust swarms, and they swarm in orders and ranks like an army, wave after wave, and, and, and in a sense, very orderly, right? But Proverbs 30 and verse 27, the locusts have no king, and yet all of them go out in ranks. That's the way God has made them. Now, the devastation would have been huge in an agrarian society, right? There's no Costco to go to to stock up on food and Ralph's and the corner market and all of that. This would be devastating. There's no foreign aid to be offered. There's no canned goods. There's no refrigeration. This would have been utterly devastating. Now, some locust plagues, there's a, a recent one that actually happened in Palestine, when I say recent, about 100 years ago, 1915. I just want to give some of the descriptive terms of, of what takes place in this. And a few different commentators have mentioned this particular event. It made National Geographic and so forth and so on. A plague of locusts covered Palestine and Syria from the border of Egypt to the Tarsus Mountains. The first swarms appeared in March. These were adult locusts that came from the northeast and moved towards the southeast in clouds so thick they obscured the sun. The females were about two and a half to three inches long. They immediately began to lay eggs by digging holes in the soil about four inches deep and depositing about a hundred eggs in each. 
The eggs were so neatly arranged in a cylinder-type mass, sort of like a pencil, about as thick as a pencil, but inches below the surface. These holes were everywhere. Witnesses estimated that as many as 65,000 eggs were concentrated in a single square meter of soil. And patches like this covered the entire land from north to south, having laid their eggs, and the locusts flew away. Within weeks, the young locusts hatched. They resembled large ants at first. They had no wings, and within a few days, they began to move forward, hopping along the ground like fleas. They would cover four to 600 feet a day, devouring any vegetation before them. By the end of May, they had molted, and in this stage, they had wings, but they still could not fly. Instead, they moved forward by walking and jumping. Only when they were frightened, and they were bright yellow in color. Finally, the locusts molted again, and this time they became fully developed adults that had invaded the land initially. Accordingly, in the description of this plague, Dr. John Whiting, in his December 1915 article in National Geographic, said the earlier stages of these insects would attack the vineyards. Once entering the vineyard, the sprawling vines would, would in the shortest time be nothing but bare bark. But then the daintyomorses were gone, then the bark was eaten, and then the young topmost branches were eaten, and then afterwards exposed to the sun became white or bleached like snow white. There's just a description of the the progression and and the different stages of a locust and how every stage is devastating. In the Bible, locust plagues are clearly a judgment from God. You remember when Moses is coming to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and what happens? Sometimes he says, okay, I will, then he changes his mind, or he says, no, I won't. What happens? There's a plague, a plague, a plague. There's the ten plagues. The eighth plague is a locust plague. And here in Joel, it's, it's as though God is saying what happened to the very enemies of God, of Egypt, is happening to you because of your sin. In fact, one of those covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28 says this, you shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locusts will consume it. And so clearly, a covenant curse, when they've left God, when they've, when they've left uh, covenant faithfulness to him. And then in verse 5, really 5 to 13, we have a, a all, it's a call to lament here. And we've already read verses 5 to 7. The drunkards should wake up and weep. These are the people that that are self-indulgent and they become unconcerned with spiritual things. Does that describe anybody you know? Yeah, it's a lot of us that live in the land of prosperity and the Disneyland of the world, as it were. We have all these blessings and all the plenty, and it's so easy to forget God. A prophet saw the locust invasion as a literal wake-up call to them. Now, first of all, let's be clear. Joel is not saying that all wine is evil. It's, that's nowhere in the text. In the Bible, in fact, wine is a, a symbol of joy and celebration on various occasions. One commentator observes that drinkers of wine 
as it says later in the passage, would include nearly the entire population of the ancient world, including the people of Judah. And the grammar here, though, is is that this is, again, sudden. It's severe. It's, if you look here, uh, drunkards, awake drunkards and weep, wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. The illustration is this, that now, of course, the wine was di- diluted there, but, but that as, as one takes a glass and begins to come up, it's cut off that quick. That's the intensity of the grammar here. Drunkards in Scripture are often a picture of those in a spiritual stupor of which the people of God can fall into. They're, they're again, as I said before, blinded by times of prosperity, and they're carried away with their own selfish pursuits. In verse 6b, it talks about its teeth are the teeth of a lion. It's, it's a metaphor for the ferocity of these locust. However, even here, there's a note of hope. There's, there's a great note of hope, of restoration, a call to come back, a glorious thing to be restored to the Lord. But even here, look at how in, in verse 6a and 7a, um, for the nation has invaded my land. It's my land, and it will always be my land, because these are always my people, and I'll never forsake my people. In verse 7, It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. There's there's a possessiveness. God often speaks of Israel as his his choice vineyard. He will not utterly forsake them and give them up. Well, let's read verses 8 to 13. Wail like a virgin girded in sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. New wine drives up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up, the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm, and also the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of God. They said this is a call for all to lament. The entire nation should lament and mourn. The the time of harvest is typically a time of celebration, a time of joy. You look at that in Ruth, there's celebration. The The barley harvest had come in. It's a time of feasting. There's joy, but here there's no joy. It's just a call to lament. It's it's a call to don sackcloth. Israel is to mourn like a young woman whose fiancé dies before the consummation of the marriage. That's pretty deep mourning, isn't it? In verses 9 and 10, the call to lament because the worship of God is disrupted. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. Again, that same language 
rapidly ripped away and cut off as God pours out his covenant curses upon this disobedient people, the very worship of God is cut off. Verses 11 and 12, the farmers are called to lament. The farmers who work so hard in the fields see the fruits of their labor destroyed in an instant. The future is desolate. The trees are ruined. There's no seed left to plant for next year. And in verse 13, the priest should lament and fast. Because the temple worship is disrupted, they are especially affected. The temple personnel would often maintain a watch throughout the night, but in these difficult days, more more would join in on that watch. And so a lament liturgy would be observed, a call to wear the rough black sackcloth overnight in contrast to the normal silky priestly garments that they would wear. All should lament. National disaster, horrible suffering and loss. What does it take for God to get our attention? Be asking that. Verses 14 to 20, solemnly cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Let's read that. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land and the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of God? The seeds shrivel under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are tore down. The grain is dried up. How the beast groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up the trees of the field. Even the beast of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. First of all, verse 14, humble yourselves, proclaim a fast. That's what's being called for here. Cease normal operations. Time out. Stop everything. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. This would include not just the religious leaders of the land, but every inhabitant of the land. I think it's remarkable in Nineveh in the book of Jonah where where it's not only the, the, the people proclaim a fast after the king declared it, but even the beast participated in the fast. This included the entire nation. When Solomon was dedicating that beautiful first temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 and that beautiful lengthy prayer several times he says even as an intercessor would but when your people sin and they fall into this but when they come and they seek forgiveness oh forgive from on high and even this portion in chapter 8 and verse 37 if there is a famine in the land if there is pestilence If there is blight or mildew or locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of the cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, 
whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven from your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to his ways whose heart you know. And you alone knows the hearts of the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to their fathers. So Solomon, even back then, remember when they come with sincerity of heart and repentance. This is not a call to fast in a formalistic way. It's not a call to jump through some religious motions to light a candle and maybe get on a kneeler in a, in a glorious cathedral or something like that. And it, it's, a, it's a call to a humble repentance. It's a rending of the heart, not of the garments, as he'll tell us next week. It's a call to deny all worldly appetites and to seek heavenly realities. On verses 15 to 18, we see the day of the Lord is near. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord occurs in two different settings, right? The already and the not yet. The devastating locust invasion that had just happened was only a prelude to that great and final judgment that will come some day. Judgments throughout history prefigure this great and final day of the Lord. Remember Noah's flood, right? Devastating, destroyed the world. It was a judgment, but was that the the day of the Lord, the final judgment? No, but, but it's a type, it's a picture, it's a metaphor. It points to that someday there will become a day that's even more devastating. Sodom and Gomorrah, another example, right? Fire raining down from heaven destroying the wicked inhabitants of the land. The invasion of Babylon and the captivity of the people was a a type and a picture, a metaphor of that day. In A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed and Titus came in and, and the temple was utterly wiped out finally after Christ had already ascended unto heaven, it's a picture. But the final eschatological judgment And vindication will come on that last day. The day of the Lord is such an important theme throughout the Old and New Testament, and especially in the prophets. I mean, we could quote several from Zephaniah and Amos and others, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all speak of this day. The the Lord will bring a swift and total judgment to his enemies. That is the final holy war, as it were. The Lord will bring vindication and blessing to his true blood-bought people, though. And that we'll see pictured in the second half of Joel in a beautiful way. Verses 16 to 18, it appears that drought is often locusts are come to, at times of drought, but um, it appears that there is a drought of some sort. Um, just more details of God's hot displeasure with his disobedient people. The seeds dry up, the barns are empty. Even the beast are moaning. I don't know what it sounded like, but we know that all living creatures look to God for their food, right? Psalm 145 says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food and due time. 
Everybody got a kick out of that. <laughs> um, Psalm 147 and verse 8, who covers the heavens with clouds and provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. The groaning of the beast of the field become, as it were, a prayer for God to bring relief. As an acknowledgement that there's a creator that's, that has uh, even done this. Romans 8.22 says, For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And that's a picture of what we have here. But in verse 19, you have this Joel pleading with God. He intercedes for the people. He sets the example for the people here. And even though it's not his sin that brought this plague upon the people, what does Joel do? Much like Moses, much like Daniel, he, he, as it were, identifies with the nation as a whole as he intercedes on their behalf. To you, O Lord, I cry. Hear my cry, O Lord. And then there's further descriptions of fire and drought. Even verse 20, where the beasts are panting for God. It reminds me of Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Well, a couple of applications and then a brief conclusion for us from this text. I encourage you to read it again and even read the next chapter before coming next Sunday, uh, just so you're, you're being reminded of these things. I know it's a lot. Um, but first of all, application, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The Lord is sovereign. He is completely sovereign over everything. Nothing happens apart from His working. Isaiah 46 um, in verse 8 and following, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. <clears throat> verse 15, uh, in verse um, 15c, it says, And it will come as destruction from the Almighty, speaking of that day of the Lord. So Joel understands that the locusts are agents of the Almighty. God is sovereign over every single locust, the millions and billions that would come in any swarm. Where they lay their eggs, the weather patterns that derive them and direct them is all according to God's perfect plan. Second, we too must lament. We must humble ourselves over God's mighty hand. We live in a country that should repent in this land, a land that celebrates the slaughter of the unborn, millions and millions. We, we've, we've created a culture of death. 
There's sexual perversion that's being promoted in every sphere of life. There's drag queens performing in elementary schools and middle schools. The LGBTQ agenda is being forced down in everyone's throat everywhere. It's around. It's being embraced. There's so much confusion that that you can't identify gender by biology. It's whatever you feel. Now, that is just the most absurd thing in the world. And if you're here today and you're in that community, we're glad you're here because you need to hear the truth of God. God continues to send warning signs. He's not idle. Every earthquake, every hurricane, every coronavirus, every lockdown is as a way to get the attention of the land. Who knows what's going to come next? What, what's the next national calamity? Is it the monkeypox virus? The new lockdowns that some are saying are coming this fall? We don't know. How about Russia? Just last night I read that if any U.S. missiles land on their soil, they will retaliate and start nuclear war. That would get your attention, wouldn't it? In our arrogance, we think we have such security. We've got the biggest armed forces in the world. We've got all this national security, right? What national security? Wide open borders, cartels coming in, doing what they want, sending fentanyl that's killing off. By the way, when the government says they care about your health, just plug your ears. It's obvious they don't. A hundred thousand deaths from from, uh, these drugs that are coming in from the border. Oh, but wait a minute. You've got economic security. You've got a vacation house. You've got a large retirement fund. Well, that's vanishing quickly as the U.S. dollar is weakened more and more. What security do we have except for in the Lord? These things are feeble. They're frail. They fall away. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. Will we humble ourselves today? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, as we conclude I think there's also a call to repentance for churches at large, okay? Uh, Many so-called churches have resorted to just formalism, a liturgy. There's no heart. It's external religion. So many are deceived from that. Other churches just outright deny the authority of Scripture. Why you would want to say that you're a religious institution that represents God but reject his book makes no sense to me. Again, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but it just doesn't make any sense. Clear denials of the authority of Scripture, but also subtle denials of the authority of Scripture, like looking for new signs, looking for new dreams. What's the newest revelation? What's the next thing that's going to come down? Wanting the next prayer of Jabez or whatever that comes. The 40 days of purpose. Rather than just seeing this book is enough. Because it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Many of these churches have misrepresented God to the people that sit in the pews. Rather than being a place of reverent worship to a holy God, they become places of entertainment and celebration and really outright worship of whoever's up front. 
churches should repent. Our church should repent of whatever we're doing that's not bringing God 100% glory. But also individuals should repent on some level or another, and maybe just connecting it to the church. Maybe it's taking pride in your own ministry. Maybe it's, um, you know, just misrepresenting how you view loving your neighbor as yourself and fellow members. We have not lived up to the high calling that we have been called to. We fail often. That's why we practice the Lord's Supper every week. That's why we, we, we're together and under the means of grace and we come confessing our sins. I love that hymn, 493, we have not known thee as we ought. We have not feared thee as we ought. We have not loved thee as we ought. And we have not served thee as we ought. Some people live in internal bitterness and resentment, which I can look at you and I can't see that because it's on the inside. And that needs to be repented of. Others live in scandalous sin outside of Sunday. I'd encourage all of us. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, oh, what a glorious day it is for you. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Come to Him with true contrition and brokenness over your sin. Realize you have sinned before a holy God and you will be held accountable Look, Adam and Eve, they fell in the garden. They fell into sin. But God gave a promise that He would put enmity between the woman and the devil. And, and God has provided a way for salvation. And in the fall, we become contaminated with sin, right? Because He's our great, 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 great grandfather. And so we inherit this contamination of a sinful nature. But we also have this corruption that we, don't, we lack the willpower to not sin. And God has come to intervene, and that's a beautiful picture of baptism. When one goes down into the water, the old man dies, and he comes up to newness of life, so that now there's the ability to honor and glorify God with your life. Does that mean living perfectly? No. But it means now you've got the Spirit on the inside guiding you and leading you to honor Him the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus, humbled Himself and took on flesh and came to the sinful world and He dwelt among us. He entered into our suffering. He, he, he stood as a substitute on the cross and died for our sins. And He's taken away our guilt in His death. That is good news. That's the good news of the Gospel. And I invite anyone here today who does not know Jesus to come to Him Someday, that day is going to come. Alas, the day! It's too late. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You so much for some of the startling language in this prophecy of Joel. Oh Lord, indeed, help us to examine ourselves and our individual lives, our families, but even our church family, Lord, that we would be those that are living for your glory. That we would not be those that are presumptuous 
of those that, that are given to formalism, but Lord, that you would keep us vibrant and living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.